This episode is all about development potential property. Now, when you're looking at development potential property, the first thing is that it probably excites you, right? You're thinking about all the potential that you could have with a lot. Maybe you subdivide into two, three, four. Uh, and then from there you go, hey, I, I have all this potential. Surely someone's going to pay more for it. It's going to be a great investment. And at the same time, I'm going to make lots of money, which is typically most of the reasons why many people jump into it. Now, here's the cool thing. I actually have built my portfolio to date, which is now at 17 properties at $12 million with no development potential properties. If you're on your first couple of properties and you're kind of thinking about this as a core party strategy, why not take a moment to pause and think, why hasn't Arjun done a whole bunch of this for his own property portfolio? How is it that he kept going and going and going and never once this crossed his mind heavily to go, I need to start looking at all this development potential stuff. Well, I'm going to go deep into that in this episode today and actually why it should be a big, it depends when you're thinking of it in your strategy. I'll also go through some of the things that agents actually look at and say, hey, uh, I'm going to upsell this property and how you can avoid those traps with a couple of reviews of certain wording. And lastly, I'm going to say that, hey, when it does come into your portfolio, when could be a good time as to when to consider it? So let's take you back to firstly, the actual pitfalls that many people don't realize in hunting for development potential property. Number one is when I start looking at development potential property, it usually means that it has larger land. Now, what does larger land mean? It means that a property is also likely to have an older age. And then you compound older age on larger land with someone holding it, thinking that there's all this potential, they're going to do something to it. They're probably doing the minimal possible needed to be able to keep its upkeep going and maintain it. Because why would you go and spend money on the house that one day you might chop up and actually demolished and end up going to look at cutting it into multiple blocks. So you can see where I'm going with this. Now, the second part is we all know price is made up in the land, right? Now, with that land price being a core component, it actually means that the rental yield will not follow. Let's say you have two exact houses side by side, but the only core difference in one of them is one's maybe 800 square meters of land and the other's 500. You could bring these two examples up to a property manager and I can tell you right now that they will not give you worlds apart rental appraisals. And the reason is very few people are willing to pay substantially more in rent just for a little bit more grass. And that's a core concept to understand that it's the house that makes up most of the rent when it's the bedrooms, the bathroom, the finishes, all these different aspects are going to be the drivers of rents in that particular example. So it means you're automatically willing and wanting as part of your strategy, a lower yield. Even if it's unintentional, you're probably going to get that. And so as a result, that part is a thing that kills cash flow in a portfolio and may kill your ability to scale, especially as you need rents to show in your mortgage applications at high levels to be able to get more lending and more borrowing and more holding and more comfort. And so this is the first part as to why I didn't go down that path. The second part is many people see development potential as development success. And they're actually two different things. To give you some examples, if you look at development potential, you might have many aspects that make it have that potential. For example, frontage, zone, or land square meterage. These seem to be three pretty common ones. And as soon as agents get a sniff of one of these, maybe even two, they chuck on a big STCA, which stands for subject to council approval. Someone used different words like STDA, uh, which, by the way, probably doesn't sound the nicest as well. Uh, but you, you know what? Some agents will use that. 
And so that's subject to development approval, not what you were thinking before, by the way. So on that note, when you look at these terms, they're thrown in there because one or more of these boxes get ticked. The zone, the square meterage, the frontage. But what are some examples of things going heavily wrong? For example, let's take due diligence. Say you have a certain easement, and that easement could be a sewer pipe that crosses certain parts of the land that makes it very difficult for you to fit that next dwelling in that land. The next one might be, sure, you've got the right frontage, but what happens if you don't have the right depth of the block to create the right square meterage and then go do what you want to do? Or lastly, what happens if it's got the potential from the zoning, but the block itself doesn't meet other parameters and things aren't as clear? Do you think you can find out everything perfectly before you buy the property? Look, in some cases, with experience and time and knowledge of certain councils and certain relationships and certain speed, that might work. But that is not the majority of property investors. Heck, not even for me at high scale levels of a portfolio could I get this right every single time before buying an asset. And that's where many people actually get it wrong. Development potential does not always mean development success. And that's a key reason as to why I haven't gone down that path because I don't want to buy something with all that potential. I don't want to buy something that holds back its rental yields. And I have to chip in a lot of money into it because it's likely not been kept up. And then all of a sudden, I don't have the development success. Two different things to look at. Also, when it comes to development success, it's not just the potential for it to be split and built on. It's actually for its potential to be split, built on, and be profitable. It's a business, remember? It's not just a transaction. And so with business, you have profit margins, you have total spend, you have profits at the end of it, you have all the different people making money along the way. So they should, by the way, because they're providing a service. But when you think of all of these things coming together, what happens if the money isn't enough or right? What would the money against a ratio of stress, time, all the way up to you just holding something, doing nothing to it, and it getting as much, or if not close to it? What's that difference? Now, the other thing with development potential that I haven't gone into yet, but I'll go into as well as a special bonus, is the fact that when you have markets that have that potential, it's likely that you need to study one deep. And so what does that mean? If winds and trends and data are changing for different areas, you might actually ignore that. Because let's just say there's a potential market in, say, the far north Queensland, and that's very attractive, and you start to look at that market and you go, hey, if I invest in this market, this could be great. Then all of a sudden the development potential that you're learning wasn't that market. It was actually all to do with, say, South Australia. If you're in deep years in trying to learn that development part of South Australia, you might get the numbers right in terms of how much it takes to cut up, build, and get the right sourcing of sites. But if you can't nail that time and time again, and the market isn't moving, then you have that risk element of market not being moving in the right direction and not picking up the stock that you want to sell quickly or for as much as you thought. Whereas just someone who'd been following certain trends across different markets and not focusing heavily on the potential might be in a better position from their assets and the value of those assets growing without the headache, the time, and the effort to have to do all these things. And so these are just some of the reasons. Now, when you go into it, if you're excited about these strategies, but you start to go, well, I don't want a property I have to constantly upkeep. There's something between development potential and actually development doing, and I might not do it, and it just sounds cool to have, and have on paper and say I bought a property with this potential, thinking that you're going to on-sell it, but what happens if you'd actually paid those profits of the on-sell in the purchase price, thinking that because of its potential, you had to pay more anyway? So you can see where this is going. It's a lot easier said than done, and not saying that you can't do it, 
But if you're in a particular part of your investing journey where you want the most tried, tested, lowest risk, and likely most successful without the time, effort, and impacts that all come into the mix, as boring as it sounds, buy and hold has done that for me. And buy and hold is doing that for hundreds of my clients, many friends, family, and more. It's something that has tested for hundreds of years. And so the key here is that we don't have to constantly get this shiny object syndrome because if you break down potential versus success, actual holding cost, rentability, rental yields, and property upkeep, combined with the thought of doing it and its potential versus doing it and paying the price for actually doing it but never doing it. Yeah, I just took you on a twist then, but that's the, that's the problem that many people have. So this is why in my portfolio, I haven't yet considered that. Keyword in that mix is haven't yet. And I'll talk to you about this yet concept. So I've talked about this in an episode in the past and it's called portfolio phases. One of the core phases that I believe in is actually simplicity and wealth building. Now, when you're in simplicity and wealth building, in my aspect here, it's I wanted to get to this particular worth of over $10 million without going so deep in all the crazy strategies. And by worth, I'm not talking net worth, I'm talking just total assets. So yes, for all the haters out there, there's debt on those assets too, okay? But in terms of worth of assets, $10 million was the asset value or the pool of assets that I wanted to crack. And so in doing that, what I've been able to now look at is phase two. And phase two is when I start to move to assets that have various types of strategies or a type of return that is perfectly fit for where the portfolio wants to go from here. And you know what? It's still not development potential in my current phase. It's now moving on to commercial property. So as you can see, I'm taking it into that phase. Now, when I said the word yet, does that mean you know, it won't come up? It may come up in the future, but it has to be a phase in which I'm okay to learn, okay to make mistakes, okay to give up some of the things I've mentioned that you do give up in yield, holding cost, development potential versus development success, and go through a learning journey knowing that I'm going to be okay due to the portfolio built to date, due to the transition to commercial and high cash flows, and due to the buffers built. So when you think about all that I've shared today, I hope this gives you some transparency into when development potential may be right and why it's not what it's always made to be. It's not as sexy as it sounds. There is a lot more that goes behind the scenes. And I hope that you don't have to feel like you have to solve it all overnight because of the tried and tested strategies that I've deployed, even after these purchases that I've made, I'm still not hunting down that potential just yet. Now, on your investing journey, in terms of these tips, consider the opposite side of development potential because it might not be what you want. If it is something that you want, go out there, learn as much about it, and really make sure that you can translate that development potential to development success because that line in the middle is where many people get it wrong. And this is why I'm not going so deep into it and so heavily into it all across the country because there's a lot to learn. And instead of making mistakes and learning and learning and learning and constantly making mistakes with such expensive assets so early on in my journey, I want to set myself up for the future first and then be happy to make those mistakes down the track. I've got a particular story to share which will show you exactly what not to do. And this is what we call creating a brief. Now, a brief might be something internally for you to just decide on what it is that you want to buy moving forward. Now, this particular person is someone who reached out to our team and wanted to have a consultation, and it was their first time investing. It was actually quite common for first-time investors. The first thing they said was, I want subdivision potential, under market value, I want high cash flow, high growth, affordable prices under 500K, 
and then at the same time I'd like it to be off market. You can tell that this person's watched, and it's not to their fault, a whole bunch of Facebook ads, a whole bunch of YouTube videos, and everything all at once came to them as this magical idea of a property. Now we started chopping this down in a few areas. So hey, if you wanted the subdivision potential, are you okay that it's a property on a bigger block of land and that too maybe a bit older? Oh no, I only want it to be in maybe 10 years or less because I don't want to have maintenance. Well, let me tell you where this goes wrong. So if you go back to 1970s, 1980s, the average land square meterage in Australia was sort of at seven, 800. You fast forward now to the 2020s, which is a whole 50 years later. So it's actually not that long in the scheme of time, but that land square meterage is in the high 300s, low 400s, depending on which of the major cities you're in. What that means is we are urbanizing, we are making blocks smaller, we're trying to fit in the same city more. And so it likely means with that theory of age, that the newer properties are probably in the major cities on smaller blocks of land. And so it means automatically that the likeliness of potential for you to cut your property up and have little to no maintenance and upkeep and be in a newer property with high depreciation and everything together is pretty low. And so we chopped that part up. The second part was, well, I want it to be extremely under market value, super cheap and really, really great, great in terms of a purchase price. And I then said, hey, well, if you had a development potential block and you were looking to on-sell that, do you not think you'd attract a premium for the right block considering you're on-selling it with all this potential? And they're like, yeah, it's actually true. And so that firstly threw that out of the water where they said, well, I don't want that to be then extremely underpriced because then something may be wrong with it. And let's just say it's those one in 1,000 scenarios where it happens, they still knew that the odds were stacked against them and they'd likely be on the sidelines waiting for that right one to come along and missing out a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of assets that may come through and actually be ticking their goals. It's kind of like that lion with the lions like waiting and all the, I think it's like the wildebeest and just all running around and they're all coming through and you go, wait, wait, I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. Development potential. Ah, crap. You don't catch it, right? It's kind of like that. And so that's kind of what I imagined and what they imagined when they started hearing for it. The next part is yields. And with yields, you can't actually grab that and ensure that it's very, very high unless the property is in an extremely affordable area. And as a result, the rents are high in that area. And which I said to them, hey, look, it's possible. But in this particular case, due to all the other boxes they wanted to tick, it really wasn't possible. And so when you start layering it down, I asked them the most important question, which is, what do you really want out of investing? And they said this, I'd like to buy a property that grows well. So I feel like I'm progressing towards my goals. And then we unpacked multiple goals and we said, well, the goal needed multiple properties. And then lastly, the goal needed properties with little to no debt. And then I asked them one more part, which is around their time availability and how much they could put aside to developing long term. And they said little to none. So in the end, we landed on a strategy that was buy and hold. It turned into multiple properties for them. It turned into a plan that gets them to their long term of holding multiple properties. And we still gave them something to chew on, which was the renovation potential. And that was pretty cool. And so they felt like they could still get their hands on something. They could still scale out a portfolio, get high yields, and in the end, produce an income. Do not be that person that has a thousand things that they want to do, but realize that those thousand things that they want to do aren't what they need to do to get to an outcome. Now, in later phases of his life, he did feel and did think that one day development potential may come up. And he just wants that to be an asset at a later phase of his journey because getting his goal and making sure it went well was number one. 
and knowing that we only needed three properties debt-free to be able to hit his goal actually allowed us to get clarity on doing that first, which we've now completed, and now we're moving to phase two. Phase two is where he might seek all those extra assets that he wants with the potential he wants and is willing to take the risk, but with much more of an open mind in terms of having every single thing stacking together because they don't always align with each other. I hope that story gives you a bit of insight into where people get it wrong from stacking everything together and also where people just need to take a step back and get clarity on what it is they truly want and get there with the easiest, most low risk possible way which is likely a whole bunch of buy and hold assets in great growing markets, timed well, affordable with good yields that you can pull equity out of and do it all over again. And so this is exactly what happened for this person. In the end of it all, when you think of clarity, that is usually people's number one issue when it comes to investing. And if you have too much sizzle, too much information, too many things to do, you're probably going to lose that clarity and as a result get stuck or constantly being that lion that's waiting for that hunt and nothing happens at all. Don't be that person. And on your journey for investing, if you are going to make development potential a key thing, make sure it's development potential that meets development success. Take that time to learn everything about it and go on and attack it, but realize that not all the boxes will be aligned at once due to the nature of some of the things I've shared with you today. Now, if you're looking at a point of where you want to end all the confusion in how you set your strategy development potential, all these different things put to the side so you can just get absolute clarity on where it is you want to go and what it'll take to achieve it and do things that are tried, tested, proven. Jump on investorkit.com.au and have a free consultation with our team to be able to learn more about how tried, tested and proven lower risk strategies can get you to phase one before you start to spread your wings into later phases of your journey. I'm Arjun Paliwal, Head of Research at Investigate Buyers Agency, and see you on the next episode.